0: good evening. That was kind of quiet. Good evening, everybody. Oh, there we go. Now we're ready. Good. Good to see you. Good to see everybody again. We appreciate you uh, you being here. Uh, Eric was going to be here to introduce and welcome, but he's going to Israel in a couple of days, and so he had to stay home and pack. And I told him I was very offended that he would rather pack for Israel than come see me, but that, that, that's the way it goes. Good to have you back here. I've really, really enjoyed doing this. Uh, we're going to do a few different things these last two weeks. Uh, Tonight we're gonna be taking a look at uh, uh, Luther's views on vocation. And it's one of the, uh, I think, really exciting parts of the Reformation uh, that just don't get publicized enough. I think it's a place where Luther has some marvelous things uh, to share across the board with our modern day and age. So I'm excited for this. And then next week uh, we're gonna do a panel discussion. We're gonna put the clergy up front and uh, we'll have at least one preset question and that is what does all this mean for moving forward? Uh, as we look at Tyler, what does it mean to be a reforming church in Tyler in 2017? I think that'll be a fun question. And also, it's your opportunity to ask any questions that haven't been asked during the session. You know, any anything you've been, you really want to know what the Lutheran view of something is, uh, that'll be your chance. So please do a, not, not tonight. Well, yeah, better you ask Blaine than me next week. So yeah, that would, uh, that would be good. So let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, again, we give you thanks for the privilege of doing all this. We thank you uh, for the chance of coming together as brothers and sisters in you to explore what it means to be your people, to explore what it means to follow you. Be with us, guide us, teach us, and open our hearts. For in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, Just one more announcement. Please do remember the Oktoberfest at our Saviors on Saturday night. Annabelle Go. There's going to be a nice young lady handing out, as you, handing out uh, little invitations. Please do, uh, do come. We, we kind of thought well, we, well, we spent what five weeks now studying together and getting to know each other. Uh, so now we need an opportunity to celebrate together. And so uh, please come. Uh, it's free admission. There will be music and dancing and wiener dog races. And then we'll be selling beer and German food and pop and all those good things. So please, uh, please do come and join us. Tonight, again, is uh, Luther on vocation. Uh, somebody asked Luther's on vacation, uh, you know, but it's vocation. Uh, and we're, our presenter tonight is uh, Blaine Davis. Blaine is a member of our Savior's Lutheran Church. He is also a teacher at uh, Grace Community High School. And he's a candidate for ordination in the North American Lutheran Church's uh, ordination process. Uh, so he is a very busy man, and we appreciate him being here with us tonight. So Blaine, I'm going to turn it over to you.
1: switch. Ah, there we go. Can you hear me? I'm not quite sure what hat I'm wearing here tonight. Uh, I'm speaking to you, but over in that corner I have a gaggle of my students that walked in. By the way, announcement from Mr. Radcliffe, here's your sign-in sheet. Make sure that you come up at the end and (laughs) sign in if you want your extra credit, okay? So uh, that's that. Get the the teacher stuff off the plate. Where to begin? I think you can't really talk about vocation without saying a lot of thank yous. So I want to begin by thanking each and every one of you for being here tonight. We couldn't have this kind of gathering if you weren't actually here. And you are. So thanks be to God for that. And we couldn't have these kinds of actual gatherings without these pastors who organize this and the people behind the scenes. Events like this take so many different people from the people running the sound to setting up chairs to picking up the papers that we leave behind. There are countless acts of service that went into making this event possible, more than I could possibly mention or give lip service to. Um, One of the things also that... um, I want to be really grateful for, and this is something that Sarah Cumming reminded me of last week, is that we're all on the same team here. We all belong to Jesus Christ. That is also our vocation, and I'll be talking about that more tonight. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm thinking about the Reformation and what it means for the future. I think that the way forward is together. Uh, We we are better together. Uh, We are stronger together. Uh, In the age to come, we will need each other. Um, And our service exists for the sake of one another, which will be one of the themes that I'll be talking about tonight. But another observation I want to make about the men who have served you here from the front, uh, those with the collars. I don't have a collar. Uh, I've got a cool pizza shirt, though. Uh, (laughs) um, But the people that have served you, those with collars, they love you. They cry for you. They serve you in so many ways that you don't see i get emotional thinking about that but it's true they suffer for you and alongside of you and they do it in so many unspoken ways so i want to thank each of the pastors who have taken the time to be here over the last five weeks for your love for your congregations i'm honored by it on a lighter note let's talk about donkeys huh Uh, uh, So that plate might be my overall favorite Christmas present I have ever received. I got it three years ago from my mom, um, and it was in my stocking, and when I pulled it out of my stocking, just so you know, I grew up, In Sao Paulo, Brazil, my mom and dad do church planting, they currently live in Portugal, my brother and sister live down in Brazil, so my family is stretched on three continents. So Christmas together is really special, it doesn't happen very often. It's going to happen this year though, so I'm excited about that. Um, But when I opened up my stocking, this is two years ago, not three years, two years ago, I pulled out this dish, and I immediately died laughing, to the point of tears, um, and if I could read what it says, it's not. this isn't particularly funny, but the story leading up to it is. Um, to carry the load without resting, not to be bothered by heat or cold, and always to be content. These three things we can learn from a donkey. See, growing up, um, the, when my dad started a church plant in different parts of Sao Paulo, it's a city of 23 million people, most of the places we started out with were rented spaces, kind of like this, I know this is not a rented location, but it would, they would be like on third stories of things. And my parents were musicians, and it was a rented spot for Sunday only, so we had to, to haul the musical equipment up there, the speakers up there, the microphones, the chords, all that. So from about age eight or so, I learned how to rap chords, I learned how to carry guitars and uh, keypads, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the keyboards and uh, stands and microphone stands. Um, And my mom got to calling me Burrino de Jesus, which means, quite literally, Jesus' donkey. And um, on good days, I was Jesus' donkey. Some days, I was Jesus' jackass. Um, And I've come to the conclusion that maybe the highest calling I can have is to be an ass for Christ. To be equally happy carrying a sack of potatoes on my back, or the Lord of the universe. To be marked with the cross of Christ, if you've ever looked at a donkey, they have that cross on their back. They're stubborn, mulish, and since I moved to East Texas, I learned they're really good at chasing coyotes. So there's a lot to aspire to in the simple service of a donkey. Also, on a lighter note, I want to add, One point of clarification from Father Matt's uh, lecture last week, um, what Yaroslav Pelikan actually meant. By the way, Yaroslav Pelikan was a Lutheran who became an Orthodox priest. um, That this is the ideal male body. You may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. So, I didn't have the robes, but I fit the form. So, where are we going tonight? Um... Little brief outline of where we're going. First, I think that it's important that we begin with an invocation of some sort. It's a place for us to begin. Uh, a brief history of vocation, uh, from secular sacred to secular and back again. Vocation wat ist das. It's a good German question that comes out of the small catechism. What is it? How does it work? Uh, Luther on vocation, some quotes from Luther himself. The Christian life intention. Uh, it 's a kind of a description of what vocation is like. Uh, vocation in the way of the cross, and then lastly, the way up is the way down. Deus abscondicus, the hidden God. And then a practical question: What about me? And by me, I don 't mean me, I mean you. So, a place to begin. We begin our worship at our saviors, and many other places in the world do too, with a very simple invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And a lot of people wonder if that is not, in fact, some sort of superstition that we cross ourselves. But it's not. It's a very simple and humble um, admission that we don't belong to ourselves. You see, in my baptism, I was marked with the cross of Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit forever. I don't belong to myself. So we begin Christian worship with an invocation. We believe in scripture that when two or three are gathered, you guys know how to finish the phrase, there God is as well. So not only do we believe in calling upon God in our presence that he comes down to us, that he's there, but we also believe that we have been called into that space as well by his name. He has drawn us there. I go to church on Sunday morning, not because I got my sorry self out of bed, made breakfast for two hooligans, and got them out the door and made it there successfully, but the Holy Spirit has beckoned me over and over and over and over again. I am there on Sunday morning, and I suspect that you are there too, by virtue of the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. And as a Lutheran, I would say, by virtue of the fact that I have been baptized into Jesus Christ. We call um, what we do liturgia, or liturgy, which simply means the work of the people. Another name for our service, and by the way, pretty much everyone here in this room calls what they do on Sunday morning a service. Uh, We call it a divine service, which can be looked at from several angles the divine service in that we serve God in some way, or the divine service that it is some sort of holy or divine work that we do together, or it's a divine service that we do to each other and for each other, or that it is God who bends down and serves us. All of these things, I think, are true in Christian worship. Invocation means that we've been called by the word, we've been confirmed in that sacrament, Luther is really big on external, earthy stuff. I began by talking about donkeys on purpose, because I'm flesh and blood. And the redemption of my soul and of my body are part of the same thing, not separate. I am a creature. I am human. I also believe in the resurrection of the dead, which means I will have much better flesh than this one day. Thanks be to God. So, in the sacrament, in our baptism, in the holy meal that we share together, Christ is doing work to us. He is changing us. I can think about my life in the liturgy over the last 10 years, how that that, that slow process has peeled away layers, smoothed out roughness. Now, I'm still pretty rough pretty coarse, still in need of divine grace over and over and over and over again. I am a sinner, and that's why I go to church on Sunday morning too, and I suspect that's why the Holy Spirit calls me over and over and over again, because forgiveness is for sinners like us. We're also called by God and sent out into the world. I love the motion of the liturgy. We start out with this beautiful invocation, calling God into our midst. We confess our sins. We are absolved of those sins. At least, in the, this is the, I know that the structure is slightly different in the, the Episcopal Church, uh, the Anglican Rite, and in the Catholic Rite. And we move then in, from our forgiveness into the reading and preaching of the word, the sharing of peace. You know, there's a, a relic of that even in the Baptist churches where we shake hands, but we don't know why. Okay? But there's a reason why we shake hands and we share peace with one another. And it's this. Because we are okay with God, we can now be okay with each other. The peace and grace that has been extended to us in Jesus Christ is now ours to give as gift to one another. Thanks be to God for that. And the sharing of the peace is originally a moment, space and time for us to ask forgiveness of one another and receive absolution from one another before we head to the table. I love the table because it's, God's welcoming gift to us. There's nothing so pure a gift as food. You can tell I've enjoyed that gift quite a bit. And I enjoy giving that gift. It's the first way that children know that they're loved. Their mom feeds them over and over and over and over again, despite the fact that they only make messy diapers and scream and holler when they don't get those things. But it's beautiful what God does to us through food. He welcomes us to his table. He feeds us a family meal were gathered around him. You know, that that phrase family meal has taken on a whole new different light in my mind because not only am I in church and working at school, but I also have this micro bakery called Sola Bread and I've made friends with lots of chefs and restaurants have this thing called family meal that happens before dinner service. It's usually a simple, humble, hearty fare that everyone eats together before the hard work of the evening begins in some ways eucharist is like family meal it's where we get fed nourished hearty stuff for our souls and for our bodies so that at the end the last thing that we say together is go in peace serve the lord and in our church we say thanks be to god and we have this little cool little add-on that everyone says and we will Right? I love that. It's, it comes from camp and the kids started it and kind of took, took on a life of its own. But, you know, we are fed so that we might go out into the world. Uh, the motion is God comes down, washes us in the midst of worship, feeds us, empowers us, and then sends us out into mission into the world for the life of the world. Humbling that he would choose the likes of us to operate in that fashion. So we are forgiven by God and now free to love. I think that's one of the key things, this idea of vocation as we move forward is because we have been made right with God, we now have utter freedom to love our neighbors as we ought to, not because we must, but because God has done something for us out of love, out of faith. It doesn't offer us anything other than what has already been granted to us. So invocation. A brief, um, a brief. I'm going to change the title here shortly. A brief, irresponsible history of vocation, from sacred to secular, from monastery to votech, and by irresponsible because, man, I don't. This could be a history of vocation could be all night. Um, so the New Testament church. Matt last week mentioned the apostolic practices of gathering together for the meal. Uh, Uh, prayers, the teachings of the apostles. Uh, They were a Eucharistic community. Um, They also did really practical things like feed widows uh, and take care of orphans. And they did all of the kind of work and cared for social outcasts that society did not want to do. And that ministry became such that there had to come a time where they had to organize people, deacons, to do that work. So you see, uh, in the early days of the church, Our calling, this baptismal calling, um, is granted that everyone is participating in it. And then comes Constantine. The church, up until the age of Constantine, undergoing a lot of persecution, um, a lot of um, hardships. It's not popular or easy to be a Christian. There are no social advantages to it. Um, He thinks that maybe we're on a cusp of of a change back towards that mode. There's nothing to be gained being a Christian. And then all of a sudden, everybody's a Christian because it's now the religion of the state. And one of the things that starts to develop is people really care, who care about their faith, want to show it, and they want to go beyond just the mere kowtowing to Constantine. And you have the development of monastic movements. This is going to be really short and really brief. Um, And you see they got a picture of St. Benedict up there, I love St. Benedict. Um, I I do not have uh, the antipathy that Luther has towards monasticism. But I also wonder if that hasn't been tempered by 500 years of history. Um, I think about St. Benedict, who, you know, the Benedictines talk about work as prayer. Uh, They have vows of stability. They give themselves to specific places. They practice hospitality. They live for their neighbors. Um, I think that part of Luther's railing against monasticism uh, has to do with his own immediate practice in the setting of what he saw in Germany during that day. Um, There was uh, (laughs) an interesting... Today we think of secular and sacred as being the church and not the church. In Luther's day, the divide between secular and sacred was within the church. There were the sacred clergy members, those who had monastic calls, and there were those who were secular clergy who served people like you and I. And there was tension between these two groups. So in Luther's day, uh, vocation is strictly a divine, holy call for people of the church. That is how Luther very much represents it and sees it. And the way you read Luther, you read enough about what Luther says in his observations about monasticism, it's very clear that his interpretation from his practice is that people think they're getting something from it. That they are earning God's divine favor and that they are earning their own salvation from it. Now whether or not that is an accurate representation of monasticism as a whole, I would probably say not. But that is his lived experience in Germany at that time. So Vocation was this very narrow track that was only for certain kinds of people. Present day, let's flash forward 500 years to today. Today we have Votech schools. We've got one down over on the West Loop. Um, vocation now means almost nothing. It's your job. Right? So we've gone from holy call for a specific set of people to a job. In some ways we could blame Luther for this. It's not all bad. As we'll, we'll, we'll piece some of this stuff together here in a second but we've gone through a huge shift to where vocation is just for certain kinds of people to vocation now being everybody's just job it's completely secularized we've forgotten that vocation literally means to call somebody to call somebody, vocare, to call that's where we get the word invocation from as well so where do we go from here? Because I don't think that you think that I think that vocation is just simply a job. that is just something that we all do. So what is it? Uh, this question is what, what follows almost every um, article in the small catechism. Questions about uh, the Lord's Prayer. Questions about the Creed. Questions about um, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments. What, and this question, you could translate it two ways. Like, what is this? But Luther is kind of more guttural. It's more like, how does this thing work from the inside out? So let's kind of try to uh, approach that. Uh, from a Lutheran perspective, vocation is not, so much what is not so much what you do, but what you are. First, vocation is what you are. And you do from what you are. In Portuguese, uh, the lang- my other native language that I grew up speaking... Um, when you meet someone new, you say, ¿Cómo se llama? How are you called? What is your name? Vocation is something like that. We begin, and that's why I started with invocation and talking about baptism. What we are determines what we do. Um, So, what am I? Well, Maybe the best example, she's sitting out there somewhere, is my curly curly Q Sue and my straight-haired girl, uh, Annabelle and Penelope. Um, Every night before I tuck them in, I ask them a couple questions before I pray for them, and I say, why do I love you? And they say, daddy, because I am your girl. There's nothing more, nothing less than everything in that statement. There is nothing that they're going to do that's going to make me love them more. There's nothing that they're going to do that's going to make me love them less. They are in this world mine. I and my wife, through our vocation as parents, have brought life into this world. And there's, I mean, that's their defining role in my household. Now, can they? Do better in my household or worse in my household? Well, on any given hour of the day, it's that. You know, if they're not tearing something up, occasionally they actually love each other, but they live out of their their givenness. They belong to the Davis household, just like you and I belong to Jesus' household. We have been born into him. We are his, nothing more, nothing less. We cannot make him love us anymore, but we thrive out of that. What we do comes out of what we are. I love this picture of Penelope at Discovery Science Place holding out uh, food, right? So she's operating in her vocation as child there to give as she has been given, to share as she has been shared with, to love as she has been loved. It doesn't change I might find her more agreeable. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure that God finds me more agreeable too when I walk in his ways. But I don't love her any more or any less. Um, she is operating in her vocation as my child. Um, Luther says, so you know, what is our vocation? What is a Christian? Well, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is also perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. I am free before Christ Yet bound to you, God has called me, and in my call, my call is is good. We're, I'm good. I'm good on the vertical, right? But God has also called me in community with everyone in this room in some way. And um, as I think about uh, Penelope and Annabelle and their role, uh, they thrive best when they thrive in who they are, that they're loved, and that they're that they are that their lives are gift. So Luther's understanding of vocation thrives really from. This passage in 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24, and all of of my Luther readings, it always comes back to this. Um, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uh, uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called, who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ." You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. And I would argue uh, that Luther sees that last sentence, whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God, is the condition of our baptism as a child of God made right with him through free gift. Through the waters of baptism, we know we belong to Jesus um so part of as we look at this passage let each one remain one of uh the the, the things that comes uh from luther's perspective uh, is he's very much concerned with in his immediate context pe- people saying if you want to be holy if you want to be called you have to go into the monastery you have to go into this kind of way. This is the only, this narrow way right here is the only way that you can be called by God. And what, he's, what Luther is pushing back against is no. God calls us in our baptism for a variety of things. And what makes our work holy or good is not what we do, but what God has already done in us and for us. And so he says, you know, Luther says, if you want to join the monastery, great, do that. Just don't have any preconceived ideas that you're going to be better than someone else because of it. And I think that that in that kind of description is something elemental, at least in myself, perhaps in you as well, that um, we want to think very quickly well of ourselves. I am tempted in my small good works on a daily basis if I've done a good job parenting Annabelle or if I have helped one of my students well, I haven't bitten your head off, right? That I that I am a good person at a boy playing, yeah. Sometimes I'm doing well, right? We are, we're predisposed towards that. And in living that way, we aren't trusting in God. I think that's one of the, the big uh, tensions that Luther sees is that there. whenever we aren't living in trust of God, we're living in trust of ourselves. And that is a very dangerous place to be. So um, I can't... Uh, not talk about Luther uh, without talking about his vision of two kingdoms. Um, He sees that there are two kingdoms in this uh, world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth. They're both ruled by God. Okay, that's not like devil's over here, God's over here, and it's like at war with each other in the middle. No, that the kingdom of this world, um, there are things like the law that has been established. Uh, He has established offices for the thriving of people. Luther talks about the two uses of the law. The first use of the law is that the law exists to establish order so that we're not murdering, killing, um, hating, stealing, coveting, all of those things that we are prone to do. God puts authorities in place for our own protection and for the thriving of society. Then there's God's kingdom. Kingdom where the second use of the law drives us. The law also says, this is the kind of God that God is, and you really don't meet that bill. You, uh, given, I mean, if you read some of the books of the law, sometimes it makes me laugh how literal God has to be in his instruction. Yeah, don't curse at deaf people. Yeah, don't trip blind people. Don't do that. That's bad. I mean, Seriously, God has to spell that kind of stuff out for us. Um, and so, you know, we can't measure up to that. We can't ever a- attain that. And that's the second use of the law. It accuses us. It shows us that we, we are, <laughs> it's too high to get up there. I can't climb, can't climb, I can't, climb. I can't get up there. Um, but within these offices, God is working. There's this interesting exchange that's going on. In our faith in what Christ does for us, We are freed in love for the sake of our neighbors. And each of these areas, these three offices, the politia, the the, the political realm, the government, uh, oikonomia, which uh, we get the word economy from, but means household. It encompasses everything from house to work. Because oftentimes in Luther's day, work was a function of the household. Um, Jobs were performed uh, by families. uh, And oftentimes your workplace was your farm. So uh, economy includes both household and um, and trade. And then ecclesia, uh, the preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacrament. These are all ways that God is working in the world. Luther uh, says one thing, he says that we as humans stand alone before God, but here on earth we are in Relationship with one another. We are entangled in this web of flesh. We're entangled in these relationships. We can't, or as John Dunn says, no man is an island, right? We, we are not these islands that stand alone, but we rely on each other for all manner of things, which drives um, Luther to observe that vocation is a description of what happens to us between our baptism and our final resurrection. That God, and this is uh, uh, Wingren, speaking here that God does not need our good works but our neighbors do I think about that that there's nothing really and if I'm speaking analogically here my daughters there's nothing really that Annabelle or Penelope can do for me. Really. Although the other day miracle of miracles sitting on the couch Annabelle comes with a glass daddy I poured you a beer I'm like so. <laughs> so she's learning yeah uh, she she was serving me in that and where did she learn that? She learned that from watching Karen. She learned that from watching me, that we, in our household, service is a way of life. So God does not need our good works, but he knows that we need each other. Um, Great Luther quote here. uh, He, God, gives the wool, but not without our labor. If it is on the sheep, it makes no garment. Well, let me be more practical because we don't deal with sheep, but I deal with bread every week. And let me tell you, when you pray that petition, give us this day our daily bread, it starts on that side of the screen, whatever, that's the left-hand side, yeah, left-hand side. Someone had to plant the wheat. Someone had to cultivate it. Someone had to remove the wheat berries from the stalk. It had then to go to a mill. At that mill, it was made into a variety of different flour products. It then went to a baker. That baker had to shape it. He had to bake the bread, then he had to take it somewhere so that you could buy it and eat it. That is God feeding you your daily bread through a complex matrix of all manner of people. And that's a a really amazing thing to think about, that we participate. Our call is to participate in this, uh, what's our first call? Uh, Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply back in Genesis, or think about Abraham's call. I will bless all nations through you, right? that, that God uses people of all things to feed, clothe, help, play music, dance, <laughs> all of these wonderful things. Yeah, so um, it, it's an earthy kind of thing, but also almost too tremendous to grasp that Jesus would use even an ass like I, For the sake of his kingdom, or like you, for that matter, because we all are. Um, Another great quote here: Uh, How is it possible that you are not called? You have always been in in some state or station. You have always been a husband or a wife, or boy or girl or servant. Picture before you the humblest estate. Are you a husband? And you think you have not enough to do in that sphere to govern your wife, children, domestics, and property so that all may be obedient to God and you do no one any harm? Yea, Even if you had five heads and ten hands, even then you would be too weak for your task. So you would never dare to think of making a pilgrimage or doing any kind of saintly work. Now, I'm not saying... What you saying here, the gist of it is... We've got enough on our plates to deal with in our own day-to-day lives, opportunities to serve, to love, to live out in faith in just a simple marital relationship, let alone adding kids, let alone adding work kind of relationships. We've got enough on our plates. Pilgrimage isn't, isn't, isn't going to be a harder task for me. That sounds like vacation, So some of the tensions of um, the vocational life uh, that I think are are important to observe. And this is part of one of the things about um, the way Luther describes our situation as humans and the way he interprets scripture that I think really resonates with me. And the first one is simuliusis et peccator. I am simultaneously in my calling there but not there. Saved but still a sinner. Right with God but still wretched. I am a dying corpse in front of you. All of us are, marching one day at a time towards our graves. Weak, frail, angry, generous, kind. All of these things in this strange jumbledness that we are. I think the question that we're going to get to at the end, well, what about me, is the question I get most often, especially from my students. What does God want me to do? What, What is the godly thing to do with my life? No, we're stuck in this, this, this is one of the tensions of vocation, that we are called, we've been made right with God, but we are also a mess. We're in, in between, uh, one of the things that, that Wingren says is that we are between two resurrections. That's where we're stuck right now. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the second resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of his body, of which we are all a part. The monumental thing to think about, that one day we will be completely unified with Christ, alive as he is alive, never to die again. There's also this tension in our life between the law that accuses us, that says what you do is not good enough, to the gospel of God that says there's nothing you can do to be good enough. You've been made right. We live stuck between those two poles, between heaven that's so far above and earth that's down here. The stuff of our lives is spiritual, sacred, earthy, mundane. God is working in the midst of all of it. Then there's God and the devil. There's that famous Luther quote that man is a horse to be ridden, and if he's not ridden by God, then he's ridden by the devil. There's not some in-between state where we rule ourselves. We are subject, and in this matrix of vocation, that this is where our, our hearts are being forged, where Um, our destiny is working itself out, where God and the devil are contending over our souls. I think in our modern world, there's a sense in which all of the technology that we use dulls us to the spiritual forces that surround us and that are fighting over us. Freedom and servitude. I'm perfectly free, yet I know I ought to serve, yet I don't want to serve. But I know I must and so I pray in faith, God help me because I can't help myself so that I might love my neighbor and do as I ought. I, I am free, but I must serve. My, my, my good works are for my neighbor and I am most free when I follow the path of Christ and give myself. Vivificatio and mortificatio, the resurrection and the dead. Right? We're stuck between death and life right now. A little bit more on that. A vocation and the way of the cross. Luther has a very practical way of talking and thinking about this. This comes right from the small catechism um, about baptism. What does such baptizing with water indicate? Well, it indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever we use that phrase, like, die to self a lot. I hear that in the evangelical circles. You know, we got to die to ourselves. We need to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We don't like to think about that literally. There's a sense in which Luther rejoices that every day he lives, he's one day closer to his physical death. He says that his real death was in his baptism, when Christ drowned that old man and rose a new man unto life, and that that future physical death, he calls it that little thing. Secondary importance, a mere gate into the resurrected body. And so there's a sense in which our vocation is a literal dying, both in physical ways and in spiritual ways and in emotional ways that we are putting to death over and over. It has to be over and over and over again. Because as soon as that, I killed the old Adam, it's like uh, the Medusa, right? He pops back up with three more heads and he's stronger than ever. And Lord, help me, I can't help myself. And I think that, this is half confessional here, right? But it's also all of our situations. I know that you're not any different in that than I am. That's one of the things about Luther and talking about vocation that really fits for me is that where I lay down on the cross is this morning when I had 50 million things to do and I had five students walk in, asking me for help on their final draft paper that's due tomorrow, and heaven help me, I have to grade those two. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I have a lesson that I did not finish prepping out all the way. I had emails to respond to. I had final touches to put on my PowerPoint, I did not have time for them. And the old Adam in me was like, come back at two (laughs) o'clock. But I I gotta, here I am talking, looking at this slide when they walk in. That's the the Crucifixion of Peter by Caravaggio. A beautiful, beautiful painting. Um, I'm looking at this, I'm like, oh, yeah. Come on in, come on in. (laughs) Let me help you with your paper. Uh, But we we, we have to kill our our own desires over and over and over again. It's not natural to us. but it is the way of the cross. We, um, we associate ourselves with Christ. We participate in his sufferings in our everyday situations. Uh, this is a great quote here. Uh, someone was asking Luther, well, um, where, where's the suffering going to come from? You know, uh, this, vo- this vocational suffering that you're talking about. He says, therefore, do not worry where you can find suffering. That's not necessary. Simply live as an earnest Christian, preacher, pastor, burger, farmer, noble, lord, and fulfill your office faithfully and loyally. Let the devil worry about where he can find a piece of wood, out of which to make a cross for you, and the world where it can find a branch, out of which to make a scourge for your hide. It's true. We have trouble enough everywhere we go. Jesus makes us that promise. We don't like to quote this this one, but Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's overcome the world, but the way towards glory is through the way of suffering, through the way of the cross. One of my favorite professors in college, a man by the name of uh, Roger Lundin, said something that has stuck with me to this day. He said, And he would say this often in his lectures, that that the way to the Garden of Eden is barred. There's no way back. The only way forward is through the cross and an empty tomb. Jesus came to die for us. He came to die, to go through that, so that he from the other side can pull us through. And we have to go through that too. As much as kicking and screaming, we want it to all be good and easy. It's not that way. Our character is forged, our lives are forged through the daily sufferings that we share with each other. The way up is the way down. Um, Luther, uh, and a lot of this I'm getting by way of Gerhard Ferdi, Lutheran theologian, talks about the the God who comes down to us. We can't go up, so he comes down. All of scripture, you see this pattern. The spirit of, of God hovering over the waters of the deep. God walking in the garden at the cool hour of the day with man. God coming down to Abraham in a dream. The incarnation for crying out loud. God in mortal flesh like you and us. The way down, the way down. God comes down. And the final image of scripture, revelation. The city of God coming down to make all things new. God is a God who comes down into his people and he is renewing things even as we speak in ways that we don't understand. That is the miracle of the incarnation in so many ways. So what I'll begin with, and this is, I, I've, I've used some salty language uh, this evening and I will continue to do so because we're talking about Martin Luther and Sir Thomas More, um, one of the, his famous lines to the words Luther is that he would shut his potty mouth. Um, <laughs> uh, but there's this great quote by Frederick Beekner, and this, Luther uses this very kind of earthly language too, that God came down into a world of shit so that something green could grow. I'm pretty manure-like, but I also see signs of life. And I see signs of life everywhere I go. That this is a God who gets his hands into the soil, who cultivates a garden, who transforms the muck of our lives into something beautiful. The incarnation, God hidden and revealed. Who would have thought that the God of the universe could be incarnate in a man, in a, a, a vessel like us? No one would ever have guessed it. I would have missed it. Oh, there's the little ones toddling in. <laughs> so, you know, it's easy, and it's easy for me to forget, and this is good that they walk in right now, it's easy for me to forget that they are also a mask for Christ, that in them, Jesus Christ is hidden. In you, Jesus Christ is hidden as well. God isn't where we think he ought to be. Uh, there's a great line. Um, General Pompey, when he uh, took uh, conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, rides into the Holy of Holies and essentially says, "Well, that's it. Where's Where's God? Expecting to see some sort of uh, mystical experience or some sort of great image of God. There's nothing there except for a box in a room. Where's God? Well, God hides Himself specifically so that we can't find him. Sounds like kind of weird thing to say. Why would God hide himself from us? Well, his absence draws us to look for him. It humbles us. It shows us that everything we thought that he was in and doing might not be the thing that he is actually doing. And that his actual project is found in a stable somewhere, in a virgin peasant woman, in ancient Judea under the rule of Caesar Augustus in physical place and time? Who would have thought that the man God suffering death on the cross would bring all of us into this room tonight? Who could have imagined that? God hidden in our midst. So something about vocation, our calling, I've tried very much not to talk so much about calling as job, but calling about who we are. That Our vocation, our calling, is oftentimes hidden. It's not glorious. It's not standing up in front of people and talking. It might simply be, ladies, doing your homework really well. Because someday, you might have an Annabelle and a Penelope who need help with math. Yeah. And so, maybe you're not learning for yourself tonight when you do your homework, but you're learning for your children, your future children. Or you're learning for your roommate in college who might struggle. There's so many different ways in which we learn. I think that the basic concept that I see every day in my life as a teacher, that most of my students walk in thinking, I I I need a good grades to get into a good college so I can make X amount of money so I can be happy. Which sounds a lot not like the way of the cross and a lot like the way of earning something for yourself. But there's another way to learn for the sake of each other so that I might be a better father and a better mother, so that I might be a better son or daughter or a better friend, that I might be wiser when the people who come across my path that God brings, I'm prepared to help them. Everywhere, God is hidden in the most unlikely of places. Um, St. Jane of Holidaysburg. <laughs> this is my grandmother. Uh, recently deceased, I had two or three years' um, Deceased to us, alive in Christ. I look forward to seeing her again. Um, I've learned a lot about vocation from her. Uh, interestingly enough, she is Lutheran, uh, although she never, I never knew her as a Lutheran. Um, she catechized my mother and countless other children. In that image right there, she is roughly 94 years old. Um, I'm, I, to this day, say that it's the state of Pennsylvania that killed her because when she turned 97, they took away her driver's license and said, you may not drive. Boo, right? And so what did St. Jane of Holidaysburg do? Well, I've got people to see and things to do. How far can I walk? Can I make a five-mile walk today? And so she set out to do a five-mile jaunt just to see if she could do it. Well, that five-mile jaunt triggered some heart issues from which she would never recover. But even unto age 97, her life was poured out in service to others. She had one daughter, my mother, who lived for the majority of her elderly years overseas. She made her first trip to Brazil in an airplane at age 79, and did it again at age 83. She lived in a small house in Niagara Falls, New York, and although she had been a school teacher for 20 years, in the small church that she and my grandfather attended, um, she was not allowed to serve as a Sunday school teacher because my father's, My grandfather's first wife left him and divorced him uh, through a very sad series of events. And because she was married to a divorcee, she could not serve in the Sunday school classroom. Not to be deterred, she started to raise money for Red Cross and the American Cancer Society so that she might know her neighbors. And she raised a ton of money for both of those organizations and started a Sunday school club in her backyard that became the neighborhood hub for people. And she taught and catechized hundreds upon hundreds of kids over the years. Far more than she ever could have had she been teaching Sunday school in that church. And far better, my mom says, I learned everything I knew from her. I learned everything I know about faith from my mother, who taught me over and over and over and over again. Um, in her 90s, uh, her next door neighbor uh, sold their house uh, a A younger married couple moved in. Uh, It was a mother. They had five children. Um, This was this lady's third marriage. Um, And she had three kids. He had two kids. Uh, Four of them were under the age of uh, five. Um, They both worked full-time jobs. And Jane said, How can I help you? Can I watch your children? Can I pick them up from school? She would change the baby's diaper on the ground and lay on the ground next to the baby because she was worried that she would drop it. She lay down next to that child and would sleep next to it. At age 93, never thinking, oh, I'm too old. No, her first thought was, my neighbor needs me. In that image right there, um, she is uh, compiling the newsletters that my mom and dad sent out monthly uh, and she would do that month by month. She would also, and that's at the Lutheran home in Hollidaysburg. She lived in a uh, assisted living cottage. She had her own cottage. She said, uh, I can never, I'd call her on Wednesday nights and I could never get a hold of her because she was up visiting the old people. <laughs> uh, just, yeah, they, they just seem so sad up there. They just need someone to cheer them up. So I'm going to go deliver mail because that's what they need. I think that's perhaps the most beautiful vision of our neighbors needing our she saw her life as a gift to others. Um, and so she sets a high bar for me. You know, there's nothing that I could do to make my grandmother love me more. But because I belong to her, I want to live like that. I don't want to retire. I want to pour my life out for everyone that I meet, like she did. Now, sinner than I am, half the time I really don't. But one of the things that my grandmother was, was fond of saying and this is a garden that she planted two months before she, or, yeah, two and a half months before she died you know one plants, another waters this is a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter three. And one gathers. Uh, after her funeral, the meal that we cooked came from vegetables from the garden that she had planted two and a half months before. The food that we ate that day, that gift, she served us even in her death so that we might live for the sake of others. God is the one ultimately that gives the harvest. He is the one that works in us and through us mysteriously, hiding himself in each of us, calling us in our vocations to serve and to love. I want to end by thinking about, before we get into what about me, three pitfalls though. Um, One, I think that we often think there's a danger in this thing of saying, you know, God does not need our good works, but our neighbors do. We ha- we are in danger of thinking that um, it's all up to us. If I don't help my next door neighbor, who will? I think a lot of uh, the prophet Elijah, who says to God, God, it's only me, I'm the only one. And God's like, yeah, but I got 700 other ones in caves. You're not the only one. God is... If if we sin against our vocation, which we will time and time and time again, if we don't measure up, God still will. He still will serve the world through other people, through the matrix of other things that are going on. We're not the only resource. Secondly, we aren't stuck. You know, Luther talks a lot about uh, the vocation of the family, this really high calling. You know, husband and wife, the most important thing you can do is be a parent. Well, what if you're not a parent? What if you don't have kids? Well, you're still... A sister or a brother or a son or a daughter. You are still part of the family of God. You are still a neighbor and a friend, a coworker. God has called you to some place. There's a lot of criticism of Luther's doctrine of vocation that he says you can't change vocation. Stay where stay put where you are. There is some wisdom to this notion of stability. Uh, in Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, he talks about the Benedictine rule of stability. There is a certain sense in which I can't do, I couldn't do some of the things I do with you students my first year at Grace. But 11 years down the road, serving the school day in and day out, I can do certain kinds of things. So there's some wisdom here to uh, this not changing of call. But the thing to think about is that our call, who we are in Christ, never changes. But the things he calls us to do in the course of our life will. I will not always have my children in the household Someday I might, hopefully, God willing, grandchildren. I might not always be a teacher. I might not always bake bread. It could be that I might end up in a hospital bed and my vocation will be to love my nurses. Actually, that's going to be all of our vocations at some point. So think about that. Third danger, I think, is the Protestant work ethic. I've lived and thrived among men who say things like, um, I don't want to rust out, I want to wear out. And I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm cut from that same cloth. And we think that we're doing God favors by working ourselves to the bone. For the sake of our neighbors, we, we justify ourselves in all manner of ways. There's some good in working hard. I believe in it. I, I work hard. But from the, the, the great hymn of Luther, we're not the right man on our side. All of our striving would be losing. There's no point in killing ourselves for God. The devil and the world are already fast at work on that. So I think that these are are three potential dangers um, in in his view of vocation. So what about me? Um, Some words of encouragement here. Uh, Probably many of you don't think every day about living in your baptism, but it's something that Luther preaches to me often, to live in my baptism, to live in what Jesus Christ has done for me, to live in the work of Christ and celebrate it. Secondly, your life is a gift, whether you are old or young. In many ways, those two right there might be a much greater gift to my church any given Sunday than me, because they bring joy. They serve in unseen small ways. They love to go help in the sacristy. They have relationships with the older members in our congregation. The old people need them, and they need the old people. It's this Divine service going back and forth. Your neighbors are gifts too. We forget that. God put them in your life for a reason, and it's beautiful. Um, we are all God's gift in many ways to each other. Even though we sin against each other, even though it's messy, we are a gift. And the last thing I want to talk about is you have all the time in the world. Don't worry about it. Now, what do I mean by that? You don't really have all the time in the world. You're all going to die. Me too. We're one, one step after the other, right? And it could be me before you. We, that's uncertain. But here is the thing I know to be true. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the world to come. That means I have eternity in a real body, in the presence of Jesus Christ on a new earth with real good things to do. Which means because I have all the time in the world, I can give it all away. I can live for my neighbor. I can live for my children. I can sacrifice my wants and desires because I hope to learn to play the piano in the world to come and I hope to learn to draw and I hope to learn to lay stones, masonry, better than I, are, I know how to do it. I know how to do it based on YouTube. I built a brick oven. Thanks be to God it hasn't fallen in on itself or killed me in the process. Um, but there are, there's a, I, I literally have any, uh, a world to come bucket list of things that I know I don't have time in this world. I never will accomplish but I have eternity for those things. And I have right now for each of you. Um, I am an English teacher, so I, I will end with some lines from one of my favorite poems, and we'll end with that, okay? It comes from uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, as Kingfishers catch fire. Uh, Hopkins is a, is a Jesuit priest, uh, a very gifted poet, uh, and I think that he captures a lot of these, these threads that I've been chasing tonight. I say more, the just man justices. He keeps grace, that that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, to the features of men's faces. Amen. Questions. I'm loaded. And got the mic. Yeah. Eight o'clock, Milo. You can leave now. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Can you unpack more the two kingdoms model that you had mentioned? Sure. Um, in relation to, say, Augustine's City of God. Um Augustine focuses on this heavenly kingdom, draws a lot on, on passages from Hebrews. Uh, you know, that Abraham was called by God because he was going towards a, a kingdom whose architect and ruler is God, right? This this perfect divine city. And um the, the Augustinian kind of train of thought is that we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world, this world. That that this world is Needs, needs, to, needs some radical things done to it, is this is where we're going up here and we're coming through it to go up there and, and we want to find the way upwards. Whereas Luther, I don't, I don't know if this is necessarily, if there, there might be some uh, Aquinian thought here. you know Aquinas says that, that grace does not destroy nature but completes it. Um, that, that this kingdom of this world, that there are still good things in creation that these offices that God created are good, but they're populated by people who might be being ridden by the devil. So that these offices can be sinned against, even though they are meant for the good of human beings, um, there are still, including, there are Christians who sin even against their offices as they fulfill them. But even in the midst of that messy tendril of things that God is at work making all things new. That's a phrase that Pastor Mark says a lot, making all things new. Uh, one, one of the thing, best things you've ever taught me, Pastor, is that uh, thank God that God is not in the business of making all new things, but is in the business of making all things new. Because that would put me in a, in a rough spot. So thank you for teaching that. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But there's those, there, as opposed to that the kingdom of this world is ruled by Satan alone. Other questions from the Pinot Gallery. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember the name. What was the scientist about the like the a gods theory? I don't know.
2: Anyway, but Pascal. you can get a reward. Yeah.
1: Pascal, Pascal's wager is what you're referring to?
2: Thanks. Um, I very much enjoyed your talk. Uh, quick question. Yes. You, you talked about the history of vocation briefly. Yes. Um, it was a brief, yes. incomplete, etc. history. Yeah. My question is, in the Lutheran tradition seems to me that the description of vocation that you gave precludes a reason to enter monasticism other than a flight of personal eccentricity. Um, okay. is, there, is there a tradition of monasticism or of that sort, there are is people... there a justification of it within Luther's idea, well, especially there... if Christian parenthood is seen as the, the principal image of all vocation?
1: Sure. Um... Probably the best way to answer that is there are people, even in Luther's time, that are Lutherans who are doing monastic kinds of things. Uh, And I I would probably, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Pastor, I'm a mere seminarian, so uh, I don't know all the ins and outs. But uh, from my my preparation for tonight, some of the things that, that I see, and I would combine it with the office of preaching, the vocation of serving in word and sacrament. So that those are very specific kinds of calls. Um, that, that the community of Christ is served in, in our ecclesiology. Uh, our pastors exist to provide wor- word and sacrament in an orderly fashion. Their office exists for the service of God's people. They are set aside for that particular task. That is their calling. Um, I think what, what Luther is getting at is that there's nothing more holy about doing that than... Doing the parenting gig, there—it's not an issue of better or worse, and it's not an issue of being eccentric. It's—it's it's where God has stationed you in life for the sake of His world.
0: I'll—I'll I'll add a personal aside. I, over over the years, I've developed a fascination for the monastic movement, and and I've—I uh, said if I had ten lifetimes, I would spend one as a contemplative. And I don't have ten lifetimes, but I I I, just—I mean, can you imagine being set aside to do to to simply pray and serve? That that fascinates me. Uh, But anyway, that that that's something to be explored in that eternity to come. Other other questions? And if not, please come back next week, and you can ask us all sorts of questions. So, (laughs) thank you very much, Blaine. Thank you. Oh, what? Hang (laughs) on. One more. This is not a, it's not a question for my friend Blaine, but more. Um, can you give us a preview of who's going to be here next week? Because is it only the people that have spoken, or are there some additions?
1: We're going to have
0: a few more. Okay. We're we're still working on a few volunteers. Uh, we're going to miss a few. A few. Uh, the uh, the Catholics cannot come back because next Thursday is All Saints Day and uh, and All Souls Day. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a very, very important liturgical day, and so they, they send their apologies. And Eric is still going to be in Israel, which uh, we'll give him grief later for. So we're going to have to do a little, uh, little shuffling around, but please, uh, please come. Thank you.